Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcast on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Christy Bly works for World Wildlife Fund's Northern Great Plains program as their Black-Footed Ferret Restoration Manager. She's involved in conserving and restoring populations and habitat of ferrets, black-tailed prairie dogs, and swift foxes across the Great Plains. We talked about the conservation story of the black-footed ferret, the only ferret native to North America and an animal once thought to be extinct. This story includes clones, drones, peanut butter, plague, and a dog named Shep. I really enjoyed this one, just getting to do a deep dive on this species with Christy. To learn more or to offer your support, I'd encourage you to visit worldwildlife.org and watch some of the videos of these little critters. They're pretty fascinating. Lastly, folks, uh, I'm in a season of life right now that's making it really difficult to keep up with this podcast. Please bear with me as I get through the next couple of months. You may notice uh, interruptions in the podcast releases, but I'm going to try to get back to a regular schedule as soon as possible. Uh, I do always enjoy the actual conversations, and I know some of you do as well, so I want to keep it going and growing. It's been about a year now, which is exciting, and I've met some some really awesome people through this. I've got some ideas on how I can improve the show, but I'd love to get your feedback as well. So please send me a message on Instagram at Land Ethic Podcast, or you can leave a review on iTunes. Thanks. On to my conversation with Christy. Today I'm joined by Christy Bly. She is the Black-Footed Ferret Restoration Manager for the World Wildlife Fund's Northern Great Plains Program. Christy, how are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you, Dylan? I'm very well. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, of course. Of course. You are all about black-footed ferrets, and you've done some incredible work to help them get reestablished. It's a fascinating story from just the point of uh, scientific observation and reintroduction. And I've been talking about, you know, about endangered species. And I kind of became aware of this ferret story and um, wanted to find someone to explain it to me a little bit better. So here you are. Uh, can you tell me first kind of about a little bit about you and your your scientific background and how you got to where you are? Sure. I um, grew up in Vermont to a family of nature-minded individuals. My, my parents were very central outdoors people. They loved to bird watch and hike and be outside. And um, both of them grew up on dairy farms. So growing up as a child, we always got to go to our grandparents' dairy farms and see the cows and the, the kittens and all those fun things. Um, so yeah, grew up in rural Vermont and I rode horses growing up and that led me to go to a university, the University of Rhode Island for my bachelor's degree in wildlife uh, because there was a riding program there and I could bring my horse to school with me. <laughs> but the gem of University of Rhode Island was their wildlife biology program. And so I was lucky enough to receive a degree there for my bachelor's and then 
Um, I moved on to working for the Turner Endangered Species Fund after numerous internships um, from everything from grizzly bear, lynx, and wolf research in the Northern Rockies and Yellowstone National Park wow. um, to restoring condors, blackfooted ferrets, and swift foxes to the desert southwest and the northern Great Plains. Um, but I also ended up um, going to grad school to get my master's in ecology from Montana State University in Bozeman. Wow. Tell me a little bit about the, uh, the lynxes and the condors and, and what you were doing back then. Yeah, you know, I had a dream to study wolves. I wanted to be a wolf biologist for many, many years. <laughs> I don't know if that came from uh, the one TV show we were able to watch, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or Ranger Rick magazines or what, but uh, <laughs> uh, I was on the pursuit for a wolf career at one point in time, and it was really competitive to get into at the time. So I took almost any job I could find, internships, um, so one of those internships led me to Glacier National Park where I got to assist with the Greater Glacier Bear DNA Project under Kate Kendall. And that was exciting. Um, and I helped to collect hair for John Spires Links project many moons ago. And I did get a little bit of a dabble in the wolf world, volunteering under the Yellowstone Wolf Project um, for wolf monitoring during winter study, which was a super fun time. Wow. That's oh, and then cool. California condors. That was a great stint probably back in 1998, uh, where, um, condors were just getting established in the grand Canyon area. So our job was to track them every day and figure out where they were and what they were doing. Wow. I love that. I, I'm sure it's been so different working with all these different animals because even looking at your, your ferret work, it's like just monitoring their populations is a really very, a very specific task because of their habit and their sort of um, nocturnal lifestyle and everything. It's really interesting. It's funny you say that about the TV shows when you were a kid. I've been talking to a lot of people about the West and about, you know, uh, ranching and stuff. And lately these images keep popping up of uh, little house on the prairie. And I didn't know that, but I realized that that was like an early, that was on the TV when I was a kid. And, um, I think it was something that sparked my interest in, in the West and just this beautiful, um, you know, landscape that was portrayed in that show. But it's funny, the things that pop up later in life that you're like, Oh yeah. Um, so tell me about how you got to, to uh, World Wildlife Fund. Oh, that's a fun story. Um, I was working for the Turner Endangered Species Fund in South Dakota and a colleague I met um, kind of over the course of my years as somebody who became um, through an open door opportunity, a Blackfoot of Ferret, you know, expert over time. Um, this colleague of mine, Steve Forrest, he was working for the World Wildlife Fund at the time. And this was probably in 2007. And um, he had come to Ted Turner's ranch in South Dakota where we were restoring black-footed ferret habitat in the form of prairie dogs and swift foxes to his lands. And um, I had learned how to translocate prairie dogs to create habitat for ferrets um, by a great mentor of mine, Joe Truitt. And so, um, when Steve Forrest was looking to help Grasslands National Park in Canada 
restore ferrets there. He came um, to the ranch where I was working to learn about kind of our translocation techniques. And then later um, we went to Canada to share what we learned there because they were looking to expand habitat for ferrets as well. Um, so shortly thereafter, um, a job opened up and I was wrapping up my graduate degree from Montana State University. And so uh, Steve came to me and was like, hey, do you want a job uh, trapping and relocating prairie dogs um, for a plague study in Montana on the Charles M. Nook? Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge. Uh -huh. And so I was like, wow, working for the World Wildlife Fund? Are you kidding me? <laughs> and so while I loved my job with Turner Endangered Species Fund, I was also at a place where it was a great crossroads. We had gotten swift foxes on the ground. The habitat was ready to go for ferrets. Um, so the World Wildlife Fund door opened and I walked through it and I've been here since 2007. Yeah, you can't go wrong with either one of those. Uh, Turner Endangered Species Fund, they do some amazing work as well. Yes. Tell me about, like, how is the World Wildlife Fund structured? It's a nonprofit, right? I don't know too much about it other than kind of through their work, but um, tell me about the organization a little bit. Yes, we are um, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to build a future in which people live in harmony with nature. Um, and we have six areas of work, um, food, climate, fresh water, forests, oceans, and of course, wildlife. And so we have goals under each of those, but we work in about hundred countries um, with all community, mobile, community members and or many different organizations to achieve um, shared conservation goals for land, water, and wildlife. Wow. It kind of, it kind of on the same um, scale as like the Nature Conservancy, right? Sure, yes. Massive public and private partnerships, um, really important kind of systems level work. Correct. We, um, the difference is that we don't own land. We certainly partner with people who do um, to help achieve shared goals on shared lands. Very cool. Well, let's talk about the, let's get to the meat and potatoes, which is the black-footed <laughs> ferrets. I, I've fallen in love with these little critters over the, <laughs> the masked bandits of the prairie. How could you not? Masked, I know they're like little <laughs> slinky raccoons. They're <laughs> so cool. Um, tell me a little bit just about, well, I guess let's start with sort of the problem. What happened with black footed ferrets and, and, you know, um, what is their sort of general profile as an animal? And we'll go from there. Sounds great. Yes. Um, well, blackfoot ferrets are one of the most endangered mammals in North America. Um, they are the only ferret species native to North America, and they are an obligate predator of prairie dogs, uh, meaning that they mostly depend on prairie dogs for food and prairie dog burrows for shelter and raising young. And so you can't really talk about the, what happened to ferrets without happening, without discussing what happened to prairie dogs. And um, a lot of that is in sync with European settlement. Um, so a few, you know, a couple hundred years ago, as European settlers started colonizing the West, um, there were three kind of main reasons. I call it the three Ps. It's the plow, poison, and plague are kind mm -hmm. of the three um, big drivers of 
the historical decline of both prey dogs and ferrets, and also some of the threats that occur today still. So as European settlers came in and some of the native prey was tilled under for row crop agriculture, that led to a loss of habitat for both ferrets and prey dogs. And then as cattle became a part of the ecosystem here, there was um, competition for grasses, real or perceived, um, and that led to large-scale government-sponsored poisoning programs of prey dogs, um, much like they did for predators during that same time. Um, and then finally, um, sylvatic plague. It's a non-native disease. It's a bacterium that is spread by fleas. And plague was introduced into North America in the early 1900s. Um, basically, ships from Asia and Africa came into the San Francisco Harbor in the early 1900s. And literally, those fleas jumped ship and landed on small mammals in California. And plague made its way um, basically into the center part of North America, into the Great Plains. Um, so those three things, plow, the plow up of the prairie, poisoning of prairie dogs and sylvatic plague were the primary reasons that led to the large scale population declines of 98% of the historical range of prairie dogs um, a couple of hundred years ago. And with that came the demise of black-footed ferrets. Um, and those two, you know, those factors are still in play today. A couple things there. That historical range would have spread from North Texas up to... Um... Alberta, essentially, right? Yes, actually, even into Mexico. Um, so Canada to Mexico, Rocky Mountain Front to the Missouri River, um, and basically where the five species of prairie dogs existed, so did ferrets, although predominantly ferrets were dependent on um, black-tailed prairie dogs, which is the main prairie dog species, white-tailed prairie dogs, and Gunnison's prairie dogs. Okay. And the extirpation efforts, the poisoning, I had always heard that that was due... Um, I had heard mostly the cattle explanation and that it was about keeping the cattle and the safe and the horses safe from all those little potholes from the prairie dog towns. Is that is that a misunderstanding? It certainly is a wives tale, although okay. it's not that it hasn't ever happened. I think that um, that's that theory comes in part from when cattle were being driven um, into the Great Plains there were large prairie dog colonies like 10 miles long 20 miles wide historically wow. speaking and when you're driving you know it's human induced you know if we're driving cattle through an area that they're unfamiliar with then you know of course those animals could fall in a hole and break a leg and it has happened i'm sure in historical times and even today probably however i don't think we give horses and cattle enough credit because they are smart enough to know sure. where those holes are and uh they do evolve together and they have lived together for a couple hundred years now. And so there are some mutually beneficial, beneficial relationships between both prairie dogs and cattle today. I could see that in terms of soil health, aeration and things like that. And it just so happens to be that where these prairie dogs need to be are kind of the fertile plains that, um, you know, that their habitat is really uh, not protected very well, it seems. Yes, I think um, grasslands of North America are one of the least protected biomes in, in the world. You know, I think as you talk with uh, Allie Fox from American Prairie, she shared that temperate grasslands, uh, there's only one 
in North America now, there's only four globally and they're some of the least protected habitats out there. Um, and they are also the bread and butter of North America, right? So the heart of North America is the agricultural haven for what produces food for all of us, you know, mm -hmm. here in the United States and also globally. So there is a balance to be had. Um, and it happens that a lot of the Great Plains habitat was very um, suitable for row crop agriculture, like wheat, corn, and soy, and still is today. And there are still an amazing amount of acres being tilled up annually. So the amount of intact prairie habitat that's left is dwindling. However, what is left is still very full of life and thriving where it's given a chance to do so. Good. Yeah, I know that some of your work is taking place. Uh, we talked about private lands with the Ted Turner's properties, but uh, also on uh, native reservations, Fort Belknap and, and places like that do a lot of great work. Is it, can you talk about why that is more conducive to, to this kind of conservation, I guess, than working with public lands? Well, there's oh, great. That's a great question. Um, certainly ferret recovery needs to include all lands where there are willing landowners um, interested in hosting prairie dogs and ferrets. Um, and at least in the in the Great Plains, a lot of that habitat is private lands. They tend to be the majority owner. And so that tends to be um, a partner that is very, very valuable for ensuring the recovery of this endangered species. I think also um, we do know that public lands have played a large role um, in ferret recovery since the first reintroductions occurred in 1991. And finally, um, tribal lands, Native nations um, also play a large role. And so when you break it out, um, there have been about 32 ferret reintroductions since 1991 in uh, the United States, Canada, um, and Mexico. And of the 14 active sites now, 25% of those are on tribal lands. Um, and, the re and the bulk of them are actually on public lands. Um, really? So there's definitely a role to be played by all three land types. And certainly we welcome everybody at the table. It's an all hands on deck requirement to recover black-footed ferrets. That's great to hear. Yeah, it clearly they need what you call them obligate predators of prairie dogs. So they need prairie dogs in abundance, it seems. I don't know, like- Correct. Do you have a metric of how much how much acreage or how many prairie dogs per ferret are required to, to keep them going? You've done your homework. There's um, That's a great question. Ferrets are territorial. So a female and her kits or the young of the year will defend their territory um, from other females. Um, and then males overlap with females during the breeding season. Um, Estimates um, from Dean Biggins, who is a, a ferret and prairie dog plague expert, um, have been about one ferret will consume about 273 prairie dogs a year. Wow. Plus or minus. Um, so one ferret, meaning like a female and her kids. Um, and then it depends on the densities of prairie dogs in an area, but typically a female ferret and her kids can occupy anywhere from 200 acres up to 500 acres of prairie dogs. So oh in order to really recover ferrets and to have an area that can host a sustainable population of ferrets, which the Fish and Wildlife Service has determined to be a minimum of 30 
breeding adults, you know, you could you could potentially need anywhere from 4,000 to 10,000 acres of prairie dogs just to support 30 breeding adults. And that that's kind of variable based on how many prairie dogs are in an area. But for example, we know that um, Kanata Basin and, and on, on the Buffalo Gap National Grassland and adjacent Badlands National Park in South Dakota, mm-hmm. they have about 13,000 acres of prairie dogs and they have roughly 70 adult ferrets. Um, wow. So okay. it does take large acreages to achieve recovery. I'm surprised by that because the ferrets, like in terms of body mass, they don't seem much <laughs> bigger than the than the prairie dogs, but they're eating five days a week from that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they will definitely metric. kill a prairie dog, you know, every few days, uh, depending if it's a female and she's yeah. raising young, she definitely needs higher caloric intake, of course. Um, but yeah, the prairie dogs can pack a punch they do have similar body weights especially some of those large males <laughs> can outweigh yeah. a, a, a ferret and they wow. certainly don't go down easy let's talk about kind of the story of of the ferret and the discovery that they were not extinct this is such a cool story it is a cool story it's definitely the comeback kid story <laughs> and i think such a great conservation success from the early days um So yes, the story goes that by 1967, it was believed that ferrets were endangered. And and when the Endangered Species Act came online, they were immediately listed. Um, And then shortly thereafter, a small population was found in Millette County, South Dakota. And so there was this effort to live trap some of the individuals in that um, area and bring them in captivity to ensure survival of the species. Well, we knew very little about ferrets at that time. We knew little about their ecology and biology in the wild. We knew very little about what they needed reproduction wise to be able to be successful with captive breeding efforts. And um, at that time, still we knew that sylvatic plague and canine distemper were two things that were lethal to ferrets. Mm. Um, And sylvatic plague is also highly lethal to prairie dogs because it's a non-native disease. There's little natural immunity that both ferrets and prairie dogs have. So sylvatic plague is incredibly lethal to both species, Um, but so is canine distemper. So that South Dakota population blinked out, the wild population did, either by canine distemper or plague or a combination thereof. And so they still had some ferrets in captivity at that point in time. However, those animals died too. So Mm. we really then thought um, by 1979 or so that ferrets were extinct. And so it was a pretty bleak time. Then in a stroke of luck, a dog saves the day. Uh, (laughs) Leave it to dogs to do well by humanity and biodiversity, (laughs) but, a, dog, a ranch dog named Shep. Um, he was owned by a family uh, in Millette, so uh, Millette, Wyoming. I'm sorry, Matizi, Wyoming, and he brought a dead ferret to his owners um, on this ranch, and they were like, "I don't know what this is," and they thought it was kind of cool looking, so they brought it to the local taxidermist in Matizi, Wyoming, to have it stuffed. And the taxidermist was like, oh my gosh, this is an endangered blackbirded ferret. <laughs> so um, the it had hawk been that family, long where people didn't even know what they were anymore. 
Yeah, I think at that point in time, there had been some posters um, kind of shopped around by the, then what it was at the time it was the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, you know, talking about this species is endangered, please let us know if you find any, because I think that kind of occurred after that population in South Dakota was discovered. Um, so the taxidermist was kind of briefed on that, which is exciting and really like a stroke of luck between the dog and the taxidermist and the hog family bringing the ferret to the taxidermist. So it's pretty lucky all in all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that launched this huge effort, you know, biologists descended in droves to this ranch and thankfully the hog family was incredibly receptive and um, they studied that population um, to learn as much as they could about ferrets. And um, unfortunately, shortly thereafter, plague and canine distemper came back through that population. Again, we knew little about plague and how to mitigate it. Uh, and so as plague started rearing its ugly head or what it looked like plague, then biologists, again, live trapped black ferrets from that population because there are about 120 ferrets at that Matitsi, Wyoming site at the time. And so they brought um, 24 ferrets in, 18 of those ferrets survived, okay. and seven, seven are genetic founders of all ferrets born in captivity and released into the wild today. It's, wow. it's really remarkable. So innovations in um, captive breeding success were very um, useful and led to the ability of of that captive population to thrive. Um, so innovations in captive breeding and then a new innovation in learning how to prepare ferrets for release into the wild once they've been raised in captivity um, because the typical dispersal time for ferrets is in the fall. So they created the Fish and Wildlife Service and Wyoming Game and Fish Department and others um, created basically a boot camp for ferrets to learn how to kill prairie dogs in a semi-wild yet contained situation. And that greatly improved um, survival of captive ferrets reintroduced into the wild. And like I mentioned earlier, um, the first reintroductions occurred in 1991 in, and that first reintroduction occurred in Shirley Basin, uh, okay. Wyoming, which was super exciting. And so since then, yeah, there's been 32 sites that have been established and um, I, th I really think that those early innovations of captive breeding, um, the boot camp program uh, for training ferrets how to kill prairie dogs, and then great partnerships. Like it was amazing. Governments, states, tribes, nonprofit organizations, private landowners, zoos, um, and, and academics, you know, academics all partnered together to help bring this species back from the brink of extinction. Yeah, I'm such a cool success story. And like you said, some really amazing innovations. I watched some videos of the rewilding um, where they're putting them through that process of, you know, ensuring that they know how to kill prairie dogs. And um, I, I spoke to Christine Tompkins of Tompkins Conservation a, um, a while back, and they had similar things going on with uh, macaws and, and jaguars. They're like, you got to put them through a little bit of a, a little bit of a phase to make sure they can make it out there. Yeah, it's that preconditioning. Cool yes, pardon me for interrupting. That preconditioning is very important and does enhance survival in the wild. Yeah. You know, and at one point in time, there was a, there was a, a height of about a thousand ferrets in the wild. We haven't talked about reintroduction goals 
uh, recovery goals, but um, the Fish and Wildlife Service has set a target of 3,000 breeding adults in the wild okay. um, in 30 or more places and um, with a minimum of about 30 breeding adults in each population. And some of those populations need to have 100 breeding adults. Um, so those metrics um, certainly matter. And when we had this height of a thousand ferrets in the wild, that one site in South Dakota I was talking about, the Kanata Basin Badlands National Park ferret reintroduction site, they were producing, they had 300 ferrets out there and um, they were reproducing. So kits were being born into the wild and that was so successful that they were able to live trap wild born kits for release at other sites. So that was really, really, really exciting. And then kind of, um, again, as like a huge um, hurdle in the long game of ferret recovery, sylvatic plague kind of jumped this invisible line it had stopped at many moons ago. So in 2008, plague arrived at that site in South Dakota. And um, it was all biologists and managers that that site could do to hang on to 10,000 of the 30,000 acres that were there. So they went from about 300 ferrets down to less than 100 ferrets at the time. So um, since then, we have not been able to restore that habitat at that scale. Um, but yeah, there's about 320 ferrets in the wild um, estimated today. So we, we've okay. still got a long way to go and only about half of those are adults. So, you know, we, we have a long way to go. And you mentioned they're all descendants of those seven that were captively bred, yes. meaning we've got kind of a genetic bottleneck going on. But yeah. another wrinkle to this fascinating story <laughs> is the cloned ferret. Which Elizabeth has, Ann! Yes, Elizabeth Ann, the cloned ferret from a deceased individual in the 80s? Tell me about, tell me about this. Yeah, so 35 years ago, Willa um, was a ferret that was um, in Wyoming and she did not reproduce, but biologists back then collected cells and other tissue samples from ferrets, um, not knowing what it might be needed for someday, but they collected it. And that was just genius. <laughs> and that, those tissues and those cells went to the frozen, I think they call it the frozen zoo in San Diego. And mm -hmm. um, they were, able to also use um, cells from Scarface, a male, back in the day as well, and create through CRISPR technology this clone uh, using a domestic surrogate. And it has um, increased the, the DNA allele diversity like 10 times over. So she's now technically the eighth founder. And while there are no plans to release her into the wild, it has been a huge boost to the genetic diversity of ferrets in captivity, which will increase the robustness of ferrets um, everywhere in the wild and beyond. And so we hope that she will be breeding this spring and her offspring can contribute um, to increased genetic diversity. And I think that's another really great story like that pretty much goes untold, but the stud book keepers for black-footed ferret um, captive breeding. And there are six places where ferrets are captively bred and raised for release into the wild. Mm -hmm. um, they're amazing, you know, to have 
the ability in the early days, I remember going to one of the first um, breeding facility centers in Sibiu, Wyoming, where there were like a, a wall of every ferret listed and who could breed with who this year and who should breed with who next year. And it was, it was amazing. And now, you know, they've got computer programs that can help with maximizing genetic diversity in that captive breeding population to increase the robustness of the wild population. But the cool part about that too, is despite only being seven genetic founders, there were very few challenges. So yes, there were some crooked tails or, you know, non-functional um, reproduction parts occasionally, but it's, it's just the genius of um, the captive breeding teams that have been involved with ensuring that, that, that we even have ferrets in the wild today because of those seven genetic founders and their brain power. Yeah. It's like this tragedy and, and the, the idea that we almost lost this species forever. I feel like it sparked all this just teamwork, awesome science, innovation. It's like, yeah. it's kind of um, almost a good thing to, to see what we can do when we when we are really are focused on bringing something back but um teamwork makes the dream work yeah it's it's really cool i another uh another thing i want to talk about you talked about the sylvatic plague since then since the uh 2000 when you mentioned or around then when when that um south dakota population was suffering from the plague uh you've recently worked on a vaccine or at least some kind of an oral treatment. Can you tell me about what that is and how you're how you're applying it? That's a great question. So yes, sylvatic plague's tricky. Um, again, it's a bacterial disease um, that's spread by fleas. You know, infected fleas land on prairie dogs, and um, and so ferrets and prairie dogs both die in several ways, right? So like. Um, it's a highly transmissible disease. So flea will land on a prey dog or flea will land on a ferret. And if this is a flea infected with a plague bacterium, those animals will directly die. Um, then if a prey dog um, interacts, have saliva contact or blood contact with another prey dog or with a ferret, they can transmit plague that way. Um, and then of course ferrets die when all the prey dogs die from starvation. Um, so, it's important to manage fleas is the bottom line here. And we've done that in a number of ways over the years. Um, one of the most long-term effective tools we've had in our toolbox for plague mitigation is a dust insecticide that is placed into prairie dog burrows to control flea populations. Okay. So it'll either coat the fleas themselves or a prairie dog going through a burrow will um, put, have some dust on its surface, on its fur, and that helps protect them from fleas. Um, and then what we've learned over the years is that annual application, and these are annual applications, so the dust only reduces fleas for about a year. Um, what we were learning is that when we are applying a dust insecticide into prairie dog burrows to control plague, um, that there was a resistance developing in fleas against the, the power, so to speak, mm. of the dust. And so um, to avert that resistance, we were looking for new tools. And so um, a really great group of people from the US Geological Survey developed a plague vaccine um, for prairie dogs in their lab and early lab trials determined that it was highly effective in keeping plague at bay. Um, 
in prairie dogs, this vaccine, just like we have a vaccine for ferrets. So ferrets, um, every ferret born into captivity is vaccinated against canine distemper and plague, and it's good for their lifetime. Wow. And then every ferret kit born into the wild, we have to vaccinate against those two diseases as well. But with prairie dogs, um, that vaccine we were thinking might need to be an annual thing. So yes, um, once the vaccine was developed, it's like, okay, well, what form are we going to put this in? Because it would be great if we could, you know, drop millions of baits across thousands of acres of prairie dogs to save ferrets and protect them from plague. So a, um, we call it a, a blueberry colored, uh, peanut butter flavored vaccine baits were developed and, um, there were field trials all over North America at ferret recovery sites. And um, it was determined that there was some success in this vaccine. So we developed World Wildlife Fund and Fish and Wildlife Service and a few partners developed a triple shooting device that would take these um, plague vaccine baits and distribute them by drone or by all-terrain vehicle to thousands of prairie dogs across the landscape. And so that triple shooting mechanism is um, still in existence today. Um, unfortunately, the Sylvatic Plague vaccine for prairie dogs didn't pan out to be as effective for protecting enough prairie dogs to retain ferrets on the landscape. So we're going back to the drawing board to see if we can make some of those vaccine baits a little more powerful or more effective. And in the meantime, two other products are, well, it's one product with two different application types have come online recently. And it's the active ingredient is called Fipronil. It's the same active ingredient in um, traditional flea and tick applications that we use for our pets. Um, Basically, it gets into the bloodstream of an animal, and then if a flea lands on that animal, it dies. So this fipronil has been approved um, in a grain form, so we can deliver fipronil-laced grain um, at prey dog burrows, and then prey dogs eat the grain just like they would eat a bait, and they're protected from plague. Um, and then my colleague, Randy Matchett, from the Fish and Wildlife Service is developing or has developed what we call FIP bits. They are fipronil baits. So same thing, a peanut butter flavored bait, colored blue so we can see it once it lands on the floor, on the ground, make sure ferrets or prairie dogs are uptaking it. Um, and that now has shown in early trials to be effective at protecting um, prey dogs from plague for up to a year as well, maybe even a little longer, and has also the potential to be a lot less expensive. Because um, what we do know that ferret uh, recovery is expensive, especially keeping prey dogs free of plague. So um, this proves this is a promising tool that we hope um, could be approved by the Envir Environmental Protection Agency. And we, fingers crossed, if we get a experimental use field trial approved, then we can test it at small field sites in the wild this summer for the next few years. So cool. it's exciting time. So this is a yet another innovation that ferret recovery has um, embarked upon and I think is a key ingredient in our ability to recover the species. Yeah, you touched on my next question there, which is cost. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> as you're talking here about, you know, monitoring um, vaccines, lab work, cloning, rewilding, 
the dispersal of the vaccine, like a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of cost. Who's paying for all this? Is this all nonprofit money, government grants? Where's this money coming from? Yes, 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 and yes, everywhere. (laughs) We will, we, we are very resourceful. Um, As, as with most conservation projects, money's, money's in shortfall, right? Um, So we do have a small stream of money that comes as a federal allocation to the Fish and Wildlife Service to maintain the captive breeding population. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is just enough to stay above water. Um, Yet there is no dedicated funding source to support wild populations. Um, So no federally allocated cash flow currently. So each site who is a willing host to, to ferrets and prairie dogs has to raise their own money. Um, And so that's where partnerships come in, partners like World Wildlife Fund, um, Defenders of Wildlife, the list goes on and on and on. And so, um, for example, World Wildlife Fund supports many tribes um, and there are many partners, um, National Park Service, Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service, Bureau of Land Management, state wildlife agencies, AZA, et cetera, et cetera, everybody pools together. Um, there are private donors that are very engaged and we're very grateful for that contribution. We've had really great luck with securing grants um, through the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And there are some tribal wildlife grants and some state wildlife grants that support recovery efforts too. Um, but it's challenging and it's never enough. And you know, if you are hoping to protect ferrets at one site, um, just keeping prairie dogs protected from plague alone can be a couple hundred thousand dollars. And so that doesn't even include monitoring ferrets and trapping those ferrets for making sure that kits born into the wild are live trapped, you know, or even mapping and monitoring prairie dog populations every year. So there's a large effort now um, through the Blackfoot Ferret Friends Group to secure a um, budget line item for fiscal year 23 that would enable um, wild field sites to receive funding support for plague mitigation and monitoring. Um, And in addition, I think it's really notable that um, while states receive some um, revenue from the sales of license fees and um, other funds through different wildlife acts, tribes don't have that same allocation of funding. So there's a large effort now to secure funding through the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, which would allocate um, millions of dollars to both states and tribes to pursue wildlife recovery goals, including blackbird ferrets. So we're hoping that these um, funding sources can come through. I also think it's really important that, you know, we kind of think about funding for ferret recovery in three, at three scales, like the short-term funding through grants, um, either corporate, federal, private donations. Um, and then midterm funding, like, uh, for example, on tr- with tribes, like, do they have funding um, from the sales of their ungulate licenses that can be redirected to pay for a biologist, for example, or to pay for programmatic funding? So yeah. that's kind of interim funding, but then that kind of long term, large scale funding, where does that come from? So that's where we're hoping that a budget line item recovering America's Wildlife Act. And then specifically for tribes, um, we have um, initiated as a collective group, a 
organization um, called the Buffalo Nations Grasslands Alliance. And that is a collective of tribes in North America, predominantly in the Great Northern Great Plains currently, but they are looking to secure long-term funding source for, for Native nations in North America to recover wildlife um, and natural resources in their homelands. Great. Yeah, I, I knew I shouldn't uh, expect a simple answer to such a complex <laughs> problem, um, but yeah. it is, it is um, kind of mind-boggling how much, uh, you know, this takes in terms of resources and time from people like you. Uh, are you familiar with PERC, Property Environment Research Center, up there in Bozeman? I am not. So they, uh, I, I had their CEO on the podcast previously, Brian Yablonski. And uh, this is like their entire focus is free market environmentalism, they call it, just finding economic solutions for problems like this. And um, I think you'd be interested in their work or, or even connecting with them if you're up there in Bozeman at some point because um, they've got – this is sort of their purview, and they're really good at it. <laughs> so that might spark some ideas. I appreciate yeah. that connection greatly. We, uh, we I think – thrive on connections as a ferret recovery team. And, you know, I think part of what's challenging too is most of us are biologists by training and what most of us need are degrees in economics or business, you know, um, and also like community re community relations, right? Because ferret recovery isn't just a biological formula anymore. It's not just about putting ferrets out on the ground and following them around and making sure they stay alive. It is about connecting communities in the landscapes where ferrets live. Um, so it has this social component and it has this financial com component and you need all three. You need to address the biological threats, you know, of plague, the social concerns surrounding prairie dogs and coexisting with prairie dogs. Um, and financially, we just have, you can't recover ferrets unless you have those three pieces of that formula together. Yeah, absolutely. Something I just thought of that I meant to ask earlier, uh, when you reintroduce them, um, you know, is that a big disruption, first of all, to the prairie dogs who have not who've gotten used <laughs> to not being predated? And then also the ferrets are sort of a mid-level predator themselves. So I'm sure they're getting taken out by coyotes and, and hawks and everything else. Like, have you noticed their do they do they jump right in and kind of figure it out or is there a little bit of a learning curve i think there's a learning curve everywhere um you probably have read stories from how elk reacted with the reintroduction of wolves in yellowstone yeah. so it doesn't take long those like long-term internal instincts come back pretty quickly after you know several of their buddies get taken um, so certainly on a naive prairie dog colony that hasn't seen ferrets and, you know, that generation of prairie dogs lifetime there, you know, there's pretty easy pickings, uh, initially for sure. Although a lot of these ferrets are captive born preconditioned, right? So there's a learning curve for them too. And, you know, we'll trap up young ferrets, um, who have like bite marks from prairie dogs all over their faces. <laughs> so I think it's, it's a learning curve on both, right? And what's amazing about animals in the wild is that they're survivors, right? Like throw plague at them. Yes, you might knock back a prairie dog colony for five or 10 years and sometimes forever, but there's a, there's a percentage that always survive. Um, and those are the strongholds and those are the animals that stick around to reproduce. And that's what, that's what you, that's what you want. Yeah. 
So you mentioned their recovery goals at about 3,000 you'd like to see on the landscape in 30-some-odd locations. And at that point, we could uh, essentially remove them from the endangered species list, right? Yeah, <clears throat> ostensibly, yes. I sure <laughs> hope we get to that number soon. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the implications. Like, what does that mean for you doing doing the work on the ground if they're on the list versus off the list? Well, I think ferrets are always going to be a conservation reliant species, much like wolves are in terms of need of management. You know, while wolves might not need a lot of help um, surviving disease, for example, um, they need a lot of help coexisting with humans. Um, and I think ferrets are the same way, although it's kind of, re well, it's a little bit of both, you know, ferrets need support and protection against plague and humans both because their prey dog prey is persecuted often and still today that exists um so um yeah i mean i think the big picture is if you kind of scale up um you know there were hundreds of thousands of acres of prairie dogs historically you know we're down to maybe one or two million acres of prairie dogs now from canada to mexico and we think we need about 500,000 acres of prairie dogs to recover ferrets so it is kind of a drop in the bucket However, when you're talking about 5,000 acres to 25 or 30,000 acres of prairie dogs in one location, you know, there needs to be some creativity there about how coexistence can be fostered between ferrets, prairie dogs, and people living on the landscape making a living. So yeah. I think, um, you know, we have a lot of work to do in that area. There are landowner incentives available for those interested in hosting ferrets, if they have enough prairie dog habitat and those kinds of creativity options matter. Yeah, absolutely. Is there a, in terms of funding and from the federal level, that Endangered Species Act, I guess, what are the implications if tomorrow uh, ferrets were delisted? Would you lose a bunch of funding? Would you lose the ability to do this science or would it not really affect you? That's a great question. I, I'm glad you brought that up because I realized I hadn't finished answering the first, that question prior. Um, wow, it's interesting. No one's ever asked me that question. And I have to say, I haven't dared to dream about it. Um, <laughs> I, I think so in previously restored species like like wolves, for example, right? They were listed for a long, long time. They were downlisted and then in some parts of the states delisted. Um, and management went from the Fish and Wildlife Service to individual states, and then a, a hunting season was placed on them, and they're able to be managed like many other wildlife species, anything, you know, like well, other carnivores, um, yeah. like elk, like deer, etc. Um, it's a little bit different with ferrets because um, as a conservation-reliant species, I'm not sure, like if we were to walk away, um, we might still see what's equivalent to uh, Pete Gover, the Blackfoot Ferret Recovery Team lead. He always equivocates um, ferret recovery to the blinking lights on a Christmas tree that like you will always have some populations of prey dogs and ferrets alive at any one time um, because of plague and lack of ability to pay for mitigating it. Um, or other drought issues that we may have not yet addressed, you know, climate change is kind of a huge elephant in the room here um, mm -hmm. in terms of what that means for ferret recovery. But I, I'm not sure what that looks like post um, delisting. I think, you know, prey dogs are not protected 
under the ESA. Um, and as it is now, ferrets are listed as a non-essential um, animal so that there's a lot of regulatory flexibility so that ferrets and landowners can coexist. Um, so I'm not sure a ton would change in terms of them being delisted other than I don't think we could secure as much money to keep them alive because right now that magic word endangered is um, kind of a red flag. You know, we are losing species thousands of species annually now. And I think, you know, as a society, we don't want to see the ferret blink out. And so um, there is a lot of funding. I shouldn't say a lot. There are opportunities for endangered species funding that would not exist if they were to be delisted. Okay. Um, so yeah. I, I do worry that potentially um, we would not have the ability to maintain them on the landscape um, by being able to protect them from plague. However, it's always the goal to delist a species. Like if, if we can get there and we figure out how to do that, that's really important, right? Like we don't want to have to spend $10 million a year recovering an endangered species. We want them to be thriving, you know, even yeah, if it oh means yeah. we have to be engaged. So yeah, that was a great question. I, I'm going to put some more thought to that. I'm trying to flesh this out in my own mind because I'm, you know, it's sort of a hot button thing right now. A lot of species teetering between or, or ping-ponging between endangered and not endangered, especially when we talk about large carnivores and stuff. And so um, I'm trying to understand what exactly that means for you guys. So that that is helpful hearing, you know, how you think about it. Um, you don't just work with ferrets, although that is your now your primary focus but you talked about some other species um i guess what other what other species that you work with do you want people to know about and um sort of they're it could be related to the the ferrets or non-related thanks for asking that question because uh one of my favorite animals is the swift fox a charismatic house cat sized carnivore living on the prairie <laughs> and yeah uh, they are fleet-footed and swift. Obviously, they are also ground-dwelling critters who eat a variety of things from berries to crickets to birds to prey dogs when they can kill them. Mm. Um, and they, I think, are representative of grassland ecosystem health. Their presence on the, la on the landscape means things are in balance. Um, so what's interesting is that when wolves were in their heyday um, before European settlement, um, it was believed that foxes were very abundant um, because coyotes were controlling, I'm sorry, wolves were controlling coyote populations, which enabled foxes and wolves to coexist really readily because they weren't competing for the similar prey item size. Okay. Um, and so foxes um, were... Um, they declined, their populations declined in conjunction with carnivore populations at the same time of European settlement when the landscape changed so drastically. So um, it's been a long and interesting story, although theirs is a little bit different than ferrets in that like, so kind of they were eliminated from the majority of their range historically, but a small pocket existed um, in the southern part of their range. And then this gigantic reintroduction effort by the Canadians brought foxes back um, to the northern part of their range and their incredible 
reintroduction effort spawned a small population in Canada, which then started trickling down into Northern Montana and then tribes, Blackfeet and Fort Peck in Montana then added to that population. So there's now this great population between uh, Southern Canada, Saskatchewan and Alberta um, and Northern Montana. And then most recently the Fort Belknap Indian Reservation and the Fort Belknap Indian community, they reintroduced foxes to their lands. So we now hope that they will serve as a stepping stone for foxes in the northern part of their range to foxes in the southern part of their range and bridge that divide. So that's also an exciting story that, again, um, by the presence of some of these animals on the landscape, namely the swift foxes in this case, it does signify that we're doing something right and that the ecosystem balance is back in place and that yeah. trophic cascades are working like trophic cascades should, right? Yeah. It sounds like the connectivity is a little bit more atta uh, attainable with the foxes versus the ferrets. Yes, they are a lot more mobile along the landscape and I think um, likely a little more tolerated because of it. Okay. Interesting. So interesting. Well, Christy, this is awesome. I really appreciate you sharing this information um, as usual, at the end, I always ask for if, if people do want to support or if they want to learn more, watch some videos, um, donate to World Wildlife Fund, where would you like to send people? Thanks for asking. Please go to worldwildlife.org. And also a fabulous resource is blackfootedferret.org. And you can learn all about ferrets and the work of World Wildlife through those two means. Um, we always welcome elevating people's understanding of the plight of ferrets in the wild. So please reach out to me or anybody involved in ferret recovery um, to learn more on how you can get engaged. World Wildlife Fund um, often offers internships. So please go to World Wildlife Fund um, or worldwildlife.org backslash jobs um, for potential opportunities there. And as always, to please look for supporting Native nations and their efforts to recover ferrets in the wild as well. Yes, absolutely. You know, I do want to just say that um, ferret recovery is possible, you know, and thanks to partnerships and innovation, we've made some really great headway. And while we have a long road to go, uh, it's possible. And I'm very hopeful. And it's really exciting to have interest generated in ferret recovery. And so we just hope to keep the momentum going and, I love it. Um, you know, innovative tools to improve ferret detection through thermal infrared cameras and potentially even eDNA sampling um, and improving our ability to protect both ferrets and their prey dog prey in the wild. One of the things that sparked this interest in, in me going down this rabbit hole was a article that just said biologists with uh, peanut butter and drones are <laughs> saving ferrets and I was like what the hell is that I gotta find out about that <laughs> so, um, whoever yeah. published that I think it might have been the New York Times um, awesome thank you so much Christy this was a pleasure likewise I really appreciate your time and interest go ferrets <laughs> go ferrets all right take care take care